and open them to 2 Thessalonians. The Old Testament passage that I just read to you is a, a, a connection to what I'm going to be preaching on this morning. 2 Thessalonians. If you have your Bibles open there, stand with me. Stand with me. And before I read a portion of 2 Thessalonians, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Now, Father, we come to bless Your name by hearing Your Word preached. Lord, make Your Word known to us. Make it powerful for us. Effectual to us. Lord, let it continue to give us light and understanding. Make our paths straight. Lord, encourage all of those emotions and affections we need, Father, for the perseverance in this life and, Lord, the enthusiasm of the kingdom of God. And, oh Lord, we pray that Your Word would come in power and that we would receive it as such. And that we would be changed this morning. Where we are wrong, where we need correction, Lord, where we need light, bring it, Father. Make us mature in Christ. Grow us up in the blessed Lord Jesus, Lord. Bring to bear in our lives the power of your word and spirit. And mature us in all of our Christian graces that we might bring greater glory, Lord, to your name in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, beloved, Second Thessalonians, I want to read a passage out of chapter 2. And I'm going to use this passage as a text to bring to you the whole gospel in 1 and 2, bringing some reminders to us as it's been some time since we've heard 1 Thessalonians preached, because 2 Thessalonians um, is a complement to it, and we need to be reminded of some things before we just launch into the exposition of the book. So here now, verses 13 through 15 of chapter 2. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this He called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, the theme of our sermon this morning is the power of the gospel. Or it's the gospel of power, whichever one you prefer. And the purpose of this morning's sermon is to bring to our remembrance many of the themes that Paul has already addressed with these Christians in Thessalonica. Now there's a direct connection that I want us to make as, we, as I preach this sermon. The connection that I want us to make is this. Just how powerful do you believe the gospel is today? Do you still believe it is the gospel of power? 
I'm afraid that so many Christians today have been successfully indoctrinated to accept the gospel along with many other philosophies of life. It's just one of many. It's just one of many dozens of philosophies of life you can take and pick which one you like, which one you choose, or if you don't necessarily like the pure gospel of Scripture, then you have the privilege of synchronizing that gospel with various other philosophies and make it your own. Brothers and sisters, I want to discourage you from that kind of thinking this morning. I want to discourage you from thinking that the gospel today is less powerful than it was in Paul's day. I want to discourage you from that. I want to discourage you from thinking that you can take and synchronize the gospel. Add to it. Take the things out you don't like and bring in new things out of the world and its ideas, out of its psychology and add to it and kind of make it your own. I want to discourage you from that. You see, there's a beautiful backdrop to all of these epistles. And that is the power that's being displayed as the apostles have been sent out by Christ preaching a message they've been given And bringing that message to the darkest of places. To the darkest of places. I mean, Thessalonica was a Roman city steeped in pagan worship. Steeped in all of the, the, the common modern philosophies of their day. Rich, if you will. And, and, and it was a fertile ground for all of those philosophies that was teeming all around them. They were steeped in all that. Mount Olympus was just neighboring them. We know Mount Olympus was the, the mountain of the gods, right? That the, all the, the pantheons or the, the mythological gods. We see the gospel being carried out by the apostles and those men that were called to the ministry up under the the apostles. They're going out and they're preaching the gospel. And what we find in Scripture when we read our Bibles is great victory. And we sung about that this morning. We sung about the victory and the power of Jesus Christ. And I wonder if we really believe it anymore. The New Testament. You know, I hear people talking about, well, we just don't see those things that we don't we don't continue to see the power of God and the hand of God like we did like we do in the Bible. Well, what if we're not preaching the same gospel? What if we're not preaching the the same Christ? That the apostles preached. What if we're not preaching the same gospel as the apostles preached? If we're not preaching the same gospel, and we're not preaching the same Christ, and we're not preaching the same expectations that should be laid upon all who believe, if we're not preaching these things, can we expect the same results? Should we expect the same results? If we are preaching a different gospel, 
and a different Savior. Now, beloved, I'm here to tell you, God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's not changed. His power's not diminished. The God that... And the God and His Son, Jesus Christ, who sent the apostles out in the first century, is the same God full of power and glory today as they were then. Same power and glory. What do we see in the book of Exodus? We see God exhibiting His power and destroying the gods of the day, the gods of Egypt and the ten plagues. They were no match for God, were they? They never were a match for God. I mean, they were, only, they were only seemingly a match for God because men believed they were. But they never were. God never sat in the heavens and wrung His hands. God never thought, what will I do if all of the gods of the Egyptians team up against me? What will I do? God never said that. God never once showed one second of anxiety toward those false gods of Egypt. He destroyed every one of them. We see another display of God's power when Israel goes into the promised land. And we have not only uh, God destroying the, the gods of Egypt, but we see all of those surrounding nations. What does God do with them? He destroys them too. What do you think about the book of Acts? The book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. We typically say, oh, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. But wait a minute, we don't always call the book of Acts of the Apostles. Earlier days, it was called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Acts of God in the life of the Apostles. What do we see in the book of Acts? We see the Apostles are sent out by the Ascended Lord they're sent out with power and they're sent out with a message and they're sent to the four corners of the earth. And what do we see happening? We see devils being cast out. The victory over Satan. We see men being healed. Right? We see Roman emperors being saved. We also see Roman emperors being judged and brought under the heavy judgment of God and, and God destroys them. You see, the, the book of Acts is a, another testimony that the, the same God that went into Egypt and destroyed that idolatrous nation is the same God going forth a thousand years later, several thousand years later, and destroying the gods of the day. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to ask you a question. Is He doing it today? Now, the answer to the question is yes, he is. What we don't see in this nation is happening in other places. But it is happening. God is continually demonstrating that ancestor worship is China's no match for the gospel. That the worship of Islam is no match for the gospel. That the worship of, of humanism is no match for the gospel in Europe. Now there's been a great blanket of indifference and lethargy fall upon this nation. Churches on many corners that we live in, and particularly in the South, 
seem to be meeting places, but hardly to seem to be places of power and glory anymore. And the question really arises out of that, what's happened? Well, I think this is why this book is so important to us, or these two letters written to these Christians can be so useful to us, is that because in in these two epistles we find those things that God highly um, uh, commends. And we can ask ourselves, where do we fall? When God commends through the apostle this church in Thessalonica, where do we stand? How do we relate? Where do we measure in all of that? It's a great opportunity for us to look at ourselves, not only as individuals and church members, but as a whole, as a body, as a church. Where do we fit in? How do we relate? How do we measure up to this church that for the most part is seen by, so, by the majority of theologians as a very faithful and steadfast church. Now brothers and sisters, the message again is the gospel of power. And I want to show you, I want to demonstrate to you the power of this gospel message as in the lives of these believers. And all along the way, I want you to ask yourself, how true is this? How true is this of me? Of us? Where am I in relationship to these things? First of all, I want to point out in chapter 1, turn to 1 Thessalonians. Because we're going to kind of sweep through the books in a survey, if you will. Reminding us of the context. The first thing I want to point out is the power of this gospel is seen in bringing forth new life. New life. Look at chapter 1. Chapter 1. There are at least three things we find coming forth in chapter 1 in Paul's thanksgiving to God. And that is there is this great enthusiasm that they knew that they have for their new found faith and love and labor and service for the God of glory. There's the loyalties and service and example given to them. Look at verse 9, if you will. Notice that this new life, this new life is displayed in their new convictions. Verse 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. New convictions. New convictions. You see, they lived in the shadow of Mount Olympus. They were very familiar and aware of the Stoic, the philosophy of Stoicism and Epicureanism and all of the various popular philosophers of the day. They knew who Zeus was. They knew who Apollos was. They knew the gods. But what do we see? We see the gospel coming And the power of new convictions. Similar today, right? We have all of these different ideas about parenting, about marriage, about life, about uh, uh, politics. 
economics, whatever the case may be. How does the gospel shape the way we think? You see, so many Christians today that think all I've got to do is when I embrace Jesus Christ, it just means I'm going to heaven and it has no effect on how I live this life. Wrong answer. That's wrong. Wrong. New convictions. Paul makes it clear that the power of the gospel is is revealed in the life of these Christians because they now serve the living God. And they've turned their backs upon the false gods and the fake gods of their day. To serve the living and the true God. You know, it was very customary in the day to write a letter and to open up that letter with some thanksgiving to the gods. Well, Paul does. Paul keeps that, that pattern of letter writing, but notice what he does when he opens the letter. He says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Paul, does Paul do? Paul uses the customary opening, but he doesn't put the gods in there. He puts the true and living God in there, and he says, look, there's a difference. There's a difference. You're a Christian. You're different. You have new convictions. You have new loyalties. You serve now. Not only You don't serve the gods of this age anymore. What are the gods of this age? The gods of this age are everything that's popular with the world that's antithetical to Christ and His kingdom. It's the ideas that, um, and we're going to get there, but it's the ideas that, well, I mean, I hear it every day about marriage. There's all kinds of things being, perme- being promoted about marriage that are, that are antithetical to God, antithetical to Scripture. And yet people embrace them. We have to think differently as Christians and have different convictions. Notice verse 3. Notice their service, constantly bearing in mind your work. Notice, work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of God our Father. Notice their service. They're no longer going to Mount Olympus and offering sacrifices. They're not any longer going to the Olympic Games and worshiping the figure of man. Right? That's, that's, what, the, that's what the Olympics were. The celebration of of humanism. They weren't going to participate in any of that. Or if they were to enjoy the uh, athleticism, they certainly wouldn't enjoy it in the way they did before. Hmm? And don't make no mistake about it, we celebrate man here in this country and across the world. The celebration of human achievements. The celebration of the human body, right? We deify it. We deify these things and we make them primary. Listen, when those things begin to shape your time, your effort, your money, your giving, and all those things, guess what? That's your God. It's your God. And there's only, listen, those things become your God when they influence you and dominate your life. They were exhibiting a tremendous enthusiasm, brothers and sisters. But let me tell you something. Enthusiasm is important. 
What you are enthused over is what you're going to talk about. What you're enthused over is what you're going to be committed to. What you're enthused over are the things you're going to be thinking about. But now enthusiasm is not enough. Enthusiasm may only last a short while. Enthusiasm doesn't necessarily breed perseverance. I mean, we see people in the Bible, right? Jesus gives the illustration of people embracing the gospel and being enthusiastic about it for a short period of time until the trials of life come along and they fall away when things get hard and difficult. So, brothers and sisters, this enthusiasm... Notice what Paul says in verse 8. He says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Paul says, You're doing such a good job telling everybody about the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. You're taking my job away from me. You're preaching the gospel. You're reaching people that I have no need to go talk to and preach to now because you're doing it. That's enthusiasm. There's a second power manifested here, not only in the power to bring new life, and that new life brings new convictions, new loyalties, and new service. But that new life brings a new way of life. That is more defined. That is this walk. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. Look at verse 12 of chapter 2. Notice uh, verse 10 through 12. It says, You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have behaved towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Notice what Paul says in verse 12. He says that you should walk in a manner worthy of God. What is walk? Walk is, walk is your life. It's your life. The things you do. The things that you um, spend your time doing. Thinking about. Working for. Working towards. Recreation. Rest. Labor, all of it is all considered. Paul says that you would begin by the things we've instructed and taught you that you would what? Put, that you would, listen, convictions only go so far if you don't apply them to your life. You know, I can preach up here all day long and people go, amen, preacher. Amen, pastor. Yes, we do. But it's no, we don't later. It's no, we don't. See, it, 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 they, that is the power of the gospel just doesn't come and bring new convictions. The power of the gospel brings a new way of living. A new expression of these convictions. That's hard. We know it's hard because if you read Thessalonians, they were being, they were being persecuted by their countrymen. Their neighbors were persecuting them. What do you mean you don't believe in Olympus? What do you mean you don't believe in the gods? What do you mean you're not longer going to the festivals of Mount Olympus? What are you talking about? What's, what's the problem? Why are you not celebrating the philosophers of the day? Who is this Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? They were being persecuted. They were being resisted. They were being uh, um, harshly treated. 
And they were maintaining a new manner of living. Look at verse 14. It says, For you, brethren of chapter 2, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that were in Judea. For you yourself endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Yeah, they were suffering for their faith. They were suffering for their new lifestyle, their new manner of living. That's the power of the gospel. See, the power of the gospel makes it all worthwhile. Why? But it's like Paul says, right, in verse 12, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom. There's a reason we walk in that way. Because God is worthy. He's worthy. They've been touched. They have been they have been blessed to know the living God. He has opened their eyes to see His glory. Not fully. We, we're still seeing the glory, aren't we? And what we see about His glory is that He's worthy of more and more and more than I ever can give Him. But I need to increase in what I do give Him. I need to spend my life not focused upon my own interests, but focused upon how shall I increase in bringing Him Glory, living in a manner that's worthy of His name. Look at verse 11 and 12 of chapter 3. Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct, direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, for all people, just as we also do for you, that He may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus with all His saints. Notice, this new way of life is not only defined, but it's to increase. It's to increase. What's your job as a Christian? To walk in the ways of the Lord and to increase in those ways. Increase. You see, I think we have been infected by the philosophies, those, those, those philosophies of the day that say, look, all that matters is I know Jesus and I'm going to heaven. How has that affected us? Well, that will stifle any increase of grace. All, I've got what I need. I don't need any more. You know, I've heard it said, and it's a sad testimony of God's saving grace, if that True grace is present in the life of a believer. But it's so many Christians that will say this. What's the minimum I can do? What's the least I can do and still be a Christian? That's not even a a question a Christian should ask. What do you mean, what's the minimum? It's not the picture Paul gives us of the power of the gospel, is it? The power of gospel comes in this new life. It comes in a new way. Uh, it brings new life. And it comes in a new living. And that life is a walk. It's defined and it's increasing. Thirdly, it comes in the new power of sin. It comes in a new, with a new power over sin. Chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us instruction on how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, that you excel still more. 
Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. See, this new, the power of the gospel, brothers and sisters, gives us, the, the, gives us a new life. And that life is displayed as a life that puts sin away. We have the strength to put sin away. Sin no longer dominates the Christian. No longer dominates their thinking. Now there may be times when sin, and you're tempted, and you fall into temptation, and sin permeates your mind. But see, by God's grace, it can't stay there. It's got to go. You can put it away from you. How do you put it away from you? Repentance. Repentance and a renewed exercise in God's grace. A renewed exercise in the means of grace. That's how you put that sin. That's how you diminish the power of sin in your life. The more you increase in the grace of God, the more you will live above sin. Now never completely away from it in this life. But the more exercise in God's graces will be the higher you will live above sin. Notice what Paul says about this sin. He he sort of gives it this negative and a positive. Notice the negative is sexual immorality. Now why is this this sexual immorality in verse 5 of chapter 4? Not in lustful passions like the Gentiles who do not know God. And and, um, verse 6. So that no one may transgress and defraud his brother in a manner because the Lord is the avenger and all these things. So defrauding one's brother. We have sexual immorality and fraud. Sexual immorality and greed. Now these things were cultural. They were common sins. And they were accepted sins among the Roman culture. If you could defraud your brother, you were a good businessman. If you could trick your brother out of money, then you're just savvy. Not deceptive. You are are a good businessman. Paul wants to make sure they understand that they can no longer continue to adopt and accept the cultural practice of sexuality. Just because the world says it's okay, just because your culture says it's acceptable to live together, doesn't mean it's so for the Christian. Just because the world says fornication is okay, it's not okay in the kingdom of God. It's not right to overstep those boundaries that God has created over sexual pleasure. It's not right to defraud one's neighbor if they have the ability to deceive to do so. You have to govern your lust, you have to govern your passions, you have to govern your greed. You have to govern that that angst in you that seeks to take advantage of somebody, to get over on somebody. You've got to govern yourself. You live by new laws. You live in a new kingdom. You have a new Lord and God. You have a new life. 
It's the power of the gospel in your life. These are the things, brothers and sisters, that hinder sanctification. They hinder growth in grace. They stifle it. They diminish the desire to want God's grace. They diminish sexual practicing of sexual immorality. Defrauding one, deceiving your neighbor, taking advantage of them in any way diminishes your desire to grow in grace. That guilt that comes with that will diminish any desire you have for the kingdom of God. It will diminish any manner of your walking to want to bring glory to God. It'll be, hey, it is what it is. We're all sinners, right? Let he who sins cast the first stone. It's all of these things that we hear all around us that's used as an excuse, what? Not to grow in grace. Not to increase in our sanctification. To deal with those root sins in our heart. Greed is a root sin. You know, greed is a, is a sister sin of lust and sexual immorality. I mean, the love of money and the love of sex is sisters. It's the same thing. It's pleasure. Money makes me happy. Or at least we think it does. The sexual pleasure will make me happy. Well, then, at least we think it does. Notice what Paul tells us to do in chapter 4 after he says, do not do these things. And notice what he says in verse 8. He says, hey, he who rejects this, this is he who rejects this doctrine and this teaching and this gospel and the power of this gospel, we're not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit. Now, verse 9, as the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught of God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren and all of Macedonia. We urge you, brethren, excel still more. Notice Paul keeps saying, like, you're doing great, but grow in it. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business. Work with your hands. So that you will have, look at what it says, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not to be in any need. Listen, if you're not in any need, guess what you get to do? You help support those who are in need. Well, yeah, listen, the welfare mentality is not biblical, the welfare is biblical. We ought to be concerned about welfare. Of others. But to live off a welfare mentality, that is, I'm not going to do any work. I'm just going to have you take care of me. That's unbiblical, ungodly. And this is the epistle that Paul says, if, if he doesn't eat, 2 Thessalonians, if he doesn't work, let him not eat. See, this is important. The power of the gospel comes. It changes lives. It changes the manner in which we live. It changes our philosophies. It changes the things we do and practice, the things that we put our hands to, the things we believe. Now, brothers and sisters, it's a battle. We have to fight our culture. We have to fight our ungodly culture. We have to fight ungodly principles and ungodly laws. We ought to be encouraging one another. Now, let's say this. I've mentioned three things. That is the power of a new life. 
the way of life, the, the power of a new living. That is, we are made new, we live, we've got to live it out. And then the power over sin. Now, there are at least three things that are important to these, the power of this gospel, to this new life, this, this new lordship we have, this, this new way of living. And that is found in verse 4 of chapter 1. And I just read it. So go back to 2 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 2. I want to read the passage again, and I want you to see it with me. But this is the source and the fountain of this power. Verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, let's see. Brothers, listen to me. God's election is the fountain of this power. I read to you Isaiah 55 for a reason. Why did Paul have success in going to Thessalonica and preaching the gospel? In other places, he didn't have success. Remember, he was on the run when he went to Thessalonica. He was run out. He was run out of town. And he was run out of other towns. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, God had elected these people before the foundation of the world to hear Paul preach the gospel. And he would, they would embrace, they would be made alive to embrace that gospel by faith, and that election would be displayed in the new power of living, the new manner of life, and the new convictions, and the new, the new life they have over sin in their culture, their sinful culture around them. All evidences of what? God's electing grace and love. Why does the gospel have power? Because God wants it to have power. See, the Word of God is like the rain and the snow. That's what Isaiah 55 says. The Word of God is like rain and snow. It goes in some places and it hardens. And it falls upon other places and it softens. Now, brothers and sisters, if we've been softened by the gospel to see His glory, to see our sinfulness, if we've been granted a desire to repent of our sins, to embrace Jesus Christ by faith, to join the church, to, to give our minds, our hands to new services, brothers, it's not because of anything in and of ourselves. It's because God has elected us to it. And that's why Paul says, look, I give thanks to God for your election. This election is evident in your perseverance. This election of God in Christ Jesus, His Son, is evident in your sanctification, your growth in grace. But brothers and sisters, listen to me. If there's not been a new walk, if there's not been new convictions, if there's not a new lifestyle, then it only demonstrates that you have not been in faith and believing in Christ. Doesn't mean you haven't been elected because you have an opportunity today to believe, to change. But I'm here to tell you that election, God's election, is evidenced in these new convictions, this new way of life. 
in this new hope and assurance, what this new service. You know, listen, listen to this to me. You can't expect to believe and have, you can't expect your hope to be valid in a God you say you believe in and you offer no service to him. If you're going to spend all your money, all your time, all your effort serving yourself, I guarantee you, you, you doubt your salvation. And you doubt your salvation because you're not serving God. And you should doubt. There's a reason to doubt. What do we see in these, these Christians? We see a whole new way of living. New convictions. Hey, it's costing them. They're losing friends. They're being persecuted. There's a second thing here, though. Look at verse 13. We not only see the importance of election. Let me turn on, I think, chapter 4, verse 7. Um, look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The second thing, beloved, is the power of the word in your life. This this manner of living flows out of the glorious truth of God's eternal election and it also grows out of the power of God's Word. God's Word is effectual. It's powerful. What do we read in Isaiah? That it turns the desert into a fruitful garden. You know what the desert is? The desert is your old crusty heart. Your old lifestyle. Your sinful past. And what does God do? He brings the Word into your life that powerfully gives, it, gives you a new heart. And it becomes a garden of the Lord. You know what gardens are good for? They're not just good for looking. They're good for walking and enjoying in. We come and have fellowship with our God in the garden. Our heart, we want Him there. We want Him there. You say, well, I need him. No, I know you need him. But do you want him there? There's two different things. We will all admit we need him. Do you want him? Do you desire him? Is he the love of your life? That's the point that's being made. Their love for God was so strong, they were willing to suffer persecution and hardship. They were willing to do battle with Satan and maintain their Christian testimony. That's powerful. That's powerful. We see, beloved, look at chapter 5, verse 12. So we see the, God's eternal election is the fountain and the source of this power. We see God's word is the instrument of this power. And then thirdly, we have another instrument of this power, and that is God's teachers. Look at verse 12. It says, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you brethren admonish the unruly encourage the faint hearted help the weak and be patient with everyone 
I don't say this, brothers and sisters, to get you to focus on me. That's not the point. The point is what Paul is saying is that the Lord Jesus Christ has ordained his apostles. His apostles have laid hands on elders. And those elders have laid hands on elders. And those elders have laid hands on elders. All throughout history that Christ would bless and make their ministry fruitful. And Paul says, those who bring you the gospel and instruct you, highly prize them. What's he doing? Because we are, ten, we, go high, we are going to prize so many things in our lives. We need to make sure we prize the right, one, right things. You esteem things. You have a whole list of things you esteem. You may not have thought about it before, but it's true. What Paul said, make sure you prize those who bring to you this gospel that lay before you this manner of teaching. Why? It's not so, Paul's not saying, oh, honor those men. You know, memorialize them. It's not what Paul, Paul is saying. Listen, if you honor the man that brings you the message, you're going to honor the message. That's why Romans, Paul writes in Romans, oh, blessed are the feet of those that bring the gospel. Blessed are those men. Look, Paul was saying, we suffered with you. Paul was saying, look, you followed our example. We came to you being persecuted and suffering, and you did what? You suffered with us. And you followed our example. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. Second Thessalonians is a continuation of these themes. What we're going to learn in 2 Thessalonians is that there were, it was not a perfect church. It was a faithful church, a steadfast church. It wasn't a perfect church. Because there were some theological issues that arose from the preaching, of, from Paul's preaching of the, the coming of Jesus Christ over the judgment of sin. Now it's interesting. Now I want to point something out to you. It's interesting that there's a, quest, a question and an issue over the coming judgment of Christ over all who disbelieve tells you a little bit about Paul's gospel, doesn't it? Paul preached judgment. Paul preached that all who do not embrace this Jesus, this Lord, this Master, this one true God, all who do not believe and trust in Him will perish. We won't hear that. We don't hear that anymore, but that's Paul's gospel. That's a power. Paul teaches us that there is a genuineness of true saving faith and it's represented in these new convictions, a new way of life, perseverance, even when it's, when it's time to suffer. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians that there are things that we need to be aware of. Beware of false teaching. Paul says, listen, if I didn't write it to you, if I didn't teach it to you, don't accept it. Now, I'm not saying I'm the Apostle Paul. I'm saying, look, whatever the Word of God Teaches, accept it. Whatever's contrary to the Word of God, reject it. But Paul also goes on to say, listen, any brother or sister that doesn't obey these things, mark them out. Admonish them. Have nothing to do with them. Don't treat them as an enemy, but beware of them. Because what's Paul saying? Because if Christians should do what? Obey the gospel. 
Christians should follow this new pattern of life. Christians should reject those things that are culturally acceptable but antithetical to God's glory. That's what Christians ought to do. Don't be duped. Even by those brothers and sisters that don't want to obey the gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, the power of the gospel is seen in a whole new way of living. I hope that describes each and every one of us. Let's pray.